Hello, it's good to be with you. Welcome to Women in the Word. So glad we can all be together and welcome to the West Campus Women. We're glad to be with you. Okay, so how many of you are Frank Sinatra fans? Okay, see if you recognize these words. And now the end is near. And so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway and more, much more than this. I did it my way, my way. exactly. What if we all live life our way? Would that be scary? That would be a scary place to live. It's scary to think about. What would we feel like saying these words when we meet our maker? Let me state my case. I did life my way. We don't want to say that. That's how children act. You know, it reminded me of a time when I was wrestling with uh, doing this time out with my children. And I'll just have to say I failed at it. <laughs> I could never get them to do it. I finally gave up on it. So when I was working on this, our son Tyler was young. He was a little boy. And one day he did something. I told him, well, you need to go upstairs to a timeout. And I left and thought he went upstairs. And then I came around the corner. And there he was standing at the bottom of the stairs. And I said, um, you're supposed to go upstairs. And he didn't move. I said, go upstairs for your time out, and he didn't move. So I decided to take his hand and gently help him up the stairs. And he grabbed onto the stairs and the railing <laughs> and wouldn't move. I had plans for Tyler. He had his own plans. And so I begin a wrestling match with my son, me pulling him, holding, me pulling him, holding. You know, in, in my great parenting skills, I finally just walked away. I couldn't handle it anymore. I gave up. <laughs> Sometimes when it comes to doing life with God, we can act like children. We want things our way. There's this wrestling match going on with God. We're holding tight to our will. We're holding tight to our plans. We don't want to let go. We have a relationship with God. But in reality, we're living pretty independently from God. We've been talking about how acting independently from God is pretty much how you can describe Jacob off and on in his life. He wanted the birthright that God promised him, so he got it his way. He wanted his father's blessing, so he and his mother were deceitful and got that blessing. He wanted to have children with his barren wife, Rachel, so he had children with Rachel's servants. God would have blessed Jacob with these things without him trying to manipulate the situation because God promised it. He promised it. You know, I was thinking if Jacob were alive today, he might be a hero because the world applauds people that are independent. But God applauds the spirit that depends on him. And I don't want us to think that doesn't mean we can't be assertive, we can't be motivated people, we can't be planners, that's great. It does mean we do life trusting in him and in his promises and not in ourselves and our own wisdom and our own strength. We go through life trusting him. I read this great, great quote. 
If we're to accomplish what God wants us to do, it must be accomplished by faith in him, not by the strength of our flesh. If we don't grow in our faith, God may bring us to some point, just as he did Jacob, where our self-sufficiency is proved insufficient. To become strong in our faith, believers must rid themselves of their self-sufficiency. Look what John 15 says. Christ says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It means we have to be willing to lose the wrestling match so that we can win it. That's how we win it. So Jacob's gonna learn this. It's time for him to go home. It's time for the nation Israel to grow in the promised land. And Jacob was gonna need God's help to make that happen. Chapter 31, verse one. Now Jacob heard the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all what was our father's, and from what was our father's he's gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban didn't regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Laban's sons, they attribute their father Laban's prosperity to um, themselves, not to God. They believe Jacob acquired it all by stealing it from their father. I don't think they know their father very well. And while Jacob is struggling with this new animosity between Laban and his sons after all these years, that's when God kindly comes to him and says, go home. Go back to the promised land and I will be with you. It was a special calling, just as Abraham had a special calling. Abraham was called to leave his kindred, go into the land of Canaan, Jacob is called to leave this land and go to the land of his kindred in Canaan. But the most important part of that verse is God's words, and I will be with you. That's what he whispers to us when we are on a journey of obedience. I'm with you. Don't do it yourself. Don't try to run ahead of me. Don't rely on your own strength. I will be with you. No need to fear. No need to wrestle me. Trust me. You know, I had a special calling once to go to the promised land. It was a land called Texas. <laughs> I lived in Illinois, but I was in love with the Texan, and he wanted to marry me. But I was young. I was very frightened. I had never even lived by my husband, Ted, before. Getting married and moving to Texas was not on my agenda. My friends thought I was out of my mind. I prayed a lot. I sought God, and I did hear God say to me, this is my will. I will be with you. And those words to my heart gave me the confidence to let go of all the plans I was grasping onto and do this, whatever God has for me, and I came to Texas, I didn't wrestle anymore, and that's why I get to live in the promised land today. <laughs> <laughs> I 
which I will tell you I love it. So when we're setting out on a journey of obedience, we just have to remember those words. We have the guidance and the assurance that God is with us on our journey and his presence. So let's see what happens. Look at verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see your father doesn't regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know, I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. Um, let's go down to verse 11. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes. See all the goats that mate and the flock that are striped, spotted, and mottled. I've seen what Laban's doing to you. I'm the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, return to the land of your kindred. So then Rachel and Leah answered and said to Jacob, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Aren't we regarded by him as foreigners? For he sold us, and he's indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God's taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Okay, weren't you impressed with Jacob that he knew to go talk to his wives? That was a wise move. And some theologians think the speech of Jacob here was one of the highest points of his life. He wanted to take along a willing family, so he wanted to talk to his wives. He wanted unity. He wanted understanding. He wanted no resentment. And most importantly, he wanted them to know this is the will of God. This is God's will for our life. So I want you to look out at the field. Jacob took Rachel and Leah out in the middle of the field. It said the flocks of sheep were nearby. The breeze is blowing the weeds and the weed in the field. And this is the story that Jacob pours out to them. He was telling them about the faithfulness of God. He says, it's because of God we've been prosperous. It's because of God that your father has been unable to harm me. It's because of God we are going to find success going into the land of Canaan. And this is the amazing thing. Maybe for the first time in their life, Rachel and Leah look at each other and agree. <laughs> Maybe the last time in their life. And they say these amazing words, whatever God has told you to do, do it, do it. And we're coming with you. They all three recognize Laban supports us no longer, but God does. God does. We can do this. And you know, they could have really wrestled th with this if they wanted to keep Laban's approval, especially his own daughters. But they didn't care to wrestle with God's will just to appease their father, Laban. When we place our hope on God's approval instead of man's approval, we are able to go on God's adventures. They were able to go. I wonder how many adventures we've missed. How many things we could have done and gone to, but we were afraid of the people around us, what they might think, what they might do, what they might say. You know, this temptation goes all the way back to the time of Christ. I thought this was a great example, John 12 on your verse sheet. 
This is talking about Christ. Nevertheless, many even of the religious authorities believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. When we wait for the approval of others, when God has called us to a journey of obedience, we are wrestling with the will of God. We have to care about God's approval. So just to be sure Jacob wouldn't do that in this situation, did you notice God calls himself the God of Bethel? Remember me? Remember me, Jacob? I met with you when you were leaving the promised land. Remember the vision of the angels going up back and forth from heaven? I'm the same God. He wants to remind Jacob also of the vow that he made to him there before he left. On your verse sheet, Genesis 28. This is when Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in the way I go and will give me bread and clothing so I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So God's saying, remember, Jacob, you made a vow when you were leaving the promised land that one day you would return to the promised land. This was God's plan, and God's plan prevails. Let's see what happens. Verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property he had gained, the livestock in his possession he'd acquired in Padanaram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates, and he set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So Laban's gone to shear his sheep, and I wish we could go back and see what's happened back in Laban's area. Crazy chaos, people running around, filling the camel's bag, get out here, get there, taking his kids, throwing them on animals, hitting the back of the animals so they take off running. We got to get out of Dodge. Let's get out of here. That's how frightened I think they were of Laban. So flocks are running, camels are running with people on their backs. It reminded me, remember when uh, Jacob was still in Canaan and what spurred him to leave Canaan? His mother's words, arise and flee and escape Esau. And now we see the same thing happening. He's arising and he's fleeing to escape Laban. It's like these are two bookends on Jacob's early part of his life. They really signify that first stage of Jacob's life. So off they go, but someone in Jacob's family is wrestling with God and Jacob doesn't even know it and she almost brings disaster on all of them. Rachel... Wants to do God's will, but she still wants to do some things her way. She's holding tight to her Syrian superstitions. She steals her father's household gods. Now, she may have thought, hey, these gods will bring us protection. Or these gods will bring me fertility. 
Or she might have thought, you know, these gods signify the right of inheritance, which was also true in that day. So she might have been thinking, one day we can get some more things from Laban by having these in our hands. Uh, Laban might have thought, one day Jacob would return and claim my whole estate. We're not sure, for, but all those reasons are probably true. Rachel decides she needs these. We know how important these gods are in Laban's life because I really believe that is what made his pursuit so quick. That's what made him go after them. Look at verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days, followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Okay, the fact that it took them seven days to catch up with this large group of people traveling lets you know Jacob was hooking it. He was making those people go as fast as he could. And don't you know his heart stopped when he looked up on the edge of a hill and he saw the shadow of Laban coming after him with his men. But you know, he didn't need to fear because God's plans prevail. That helps us when we want to wrestle with him to remember his plans prevail no matter how much man wrestles with God. And who's in the wrestling match right now? Laban. Laban really won't be reckoning with Jacob, though. He's going to be reckoning with God. And he discovers that when he realizes the night before he catches up with Jacob that God comes to him and says those words, don't do anything good or bad. Okay, wait a minute. Have you guys remember those words ever in the past few weeks? God was speaking Laban's own words right back to him. Remember years earlier when Abraham sent Eliezer and said, go to, late, go to this uh, family here, find me a wife outside of Canaan, bring her back. And Eliezer prayed and he gets led to Rebecca and he's telling Laban, the, Rebecca's brother, and he's telling her dad the story of how he and his master have prayed and they believe they're supposed to take Rebecca back and look on your verse sheet for Laban the brother's reply. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, good or bad. So when God comes to Laban the night before he meets Jacob, he's reminding him of these words and he's saying, you know, you have no right to interfere in my plans with Jacob just like you had no right to interfere with my plans with Isaac. And I think this phrase, don't say anything good or mad, bad, in Hebrew means butt out. <laughs> butt out, Laban. Don't you say a word. My plans prevail. Laban's plan was to harm Jacob and probably force him to return back to his land. Never did it occur to Laban to seek God on this, to seek what God wanted in Jacob's life. And I thought, what a great reminder for us when unfair conflict confronts us or hard things aren't going our way. Instead of reacting in anger and pursuing what we would call justice, what if we 
prayed about it first? What if we waited and sought God and sought what his will might be and then things might begin to look different for us? We have to set aside our plans before we can recognize what God's plans are. Or we're going to find ourselves in a wrestling match with God. You know, last summer I was meeting with four people. We were working on a new ministry. And I know every single one of us came to that meeting with the plan in their head. We all had a plan. This is how we're going to start. This is what it's going to look like. Now, the good thing is this really godly man was running this meeting. And so when we all sat down and we're ready to take out our little notepads and get to hear ourselves talk so eloquently, he stopped us and said, okay, let's pray about this. And we stopped and we prayed and then we finished and our, our plans began to slowly fade out of our mind because God had his own plans. And we began to realize, oh, I, I never thought about that. And we were all in agreement. And today I can tell you, there are things happening in fruit in that ministry we never even thought of. But God in his graciousness redirected our plans. Look at James 4, 13. Come now, you who say, well, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Realizing that he can't beat God, Jacob approaches Laban approaches Jacob. Look at, um, did we read 24, 50? Yes. Okay, so as he approaches him, we're not gonna read all this story because we don't have time. Laban approaches him using um, legal jargon. It is a serious meeting. It is a tense meeting. And we'll also notice when you read that, that they use military terms while they're talking to each other. This means that they are enemies. They are no longer friends. In fact, have you noticed they begin to, um, God begins to define Laban in these verses as Laban the Aramean, not Laban the father, not Laban the father-in-law. Now he's an enemy. Laban presents himself as the injured, loving father and the frustrated avenger who God will not let him receive his justice. But finally, what's most on Laban's mind comes out, where are the gods that you have stolen? Now, Jacob doesn't know that Rachel has stolen these gods, so he tells Laban, look for them and put to death anyone who has them. He has put a death sentence on his wife, Rachel, but he doesn't know it. So you can picture this angry and frustrated Laban. He's been chasing Jacob for seven days. He's exhausted. He's mad. And he goes up to the camels and he's tearing the bags off it. He's going from tent to tent, ransacking every tent. And he finally arrives at the tent of his daughter, Rachel. Now, uh, when he comes to Rachel's tent, little does he know she's as tricky as her father. She's learned well from her father, Laban. So she's sitting on a camel saddle inside the tent. Now, when he entered the tent, it would have been very much expected that she would rise to greet him. But instead, um, 
she claims to have her period, and so she can't stand up. As Laban walks out of Rachel's tent, he's met by the man who has worked for him and been cheated by him for 20 years. It is Jacob's turn to talk. Look at verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. He said, what is my offense? What is my sin that you've hotly pursued me? You have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I didn't bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fred from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flock, and you've changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father... The God of Abraham in the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So when Jacob's dramatic speech is over, did you notice what does Laban say? Nothing. Who is Jacob's defense attorney? God, Laban has nothing to say back. He cannot challenge Jacob again. So instead he says, well, let's make a covenant. Laban sort of demands it. So Jacob gathers stones and Jacob's servants gather stones. They build a pillar. They called it a, a witness. Laban says, I want this to be a witness that you're going to be good to my daughters. You're not going to marry anyone else. And you're not going to come and harm me. That was fine with uh, Jacob. It's a visual monument to the fact that these two nations and these two men would never get together again. And we see a little bit, I don't know if you noticed it, about Laban's self-delusion, how he even lies during this endeavor, because later, even though Jacob and his servants gather all the stones and build the pillar, Laban says, see this heap of stones and this pillar that I have built between you and me? It sort of gives you insight to what he's been doing to Jacob all these years. In his mind, he built the pillar, yet Jacob did. And guess what? Jacob didn't even need it. He was never going back there. For Jacob, this pillar was an everlasting confession in stone of a man released from servitude. And this pillar was a statement that God had protected Israel, meaning Jacob, and was bringing his people back into the land. And that pillar would mark a boundary between Israel and the east that would mark where Israel's enemies begin and what God would keep them apart from their enemies. God's plans prevail. I'm thinking at this point, Jacob is tired, but his biggest fear is still before him. The shadow of his brother Esau is looming large before him. Remember his murderous threats 20 years ago are ringing in his ears. And so Jacob's going to have to deal with him on his journey home. 
But on his way there, he is overcome by the goodness of God. Look at chapter 32, verse 1. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahaniam. This is the camp of God, a camp of heavenly hosts. And it's like they're welcoming Jacob back into the promised land. And God also wants to make sure Jacob sees through those angels his divine protection. Those who were for Jacob were much more powerful than those who were against Jacob. No human effort is sufficient to battle the enemies that confront us. God is our means of victory. And you know, you and I don't have enemies like Laban, but we have other enemies. You have other people in your life. You have other fears in your life, losses. You might have some addictions. We have other ways we face enemies. And we have to realize, I cannot escape this in my own strength. I need God. When we recognize God is our means of victory, we can quit wrestling with God in our trials. We give it to God. Look what Psalm 18 says. God rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He delighted in me. Why wrestle that? What a great gift. So I love that God encouraged Jacob in Bethel when he was leaving the promised land, and now he blesses him with angels again when he's coming back into the promised land. He calls this land, this time, Mahaniam, meaning two camps. So a lot of theologians mean, what does this mean, two camps? Well, you got a camp of God, and you got Jacob's camp. You got Jacob's camp with some helpless wives and women and servants and people scared out of their minds. And then you have God's camp. Supernatural. Powerful. Faithful. With this amazing encounter, Jacob would not need to forget that God is the means of his victory. But guess what? He pretty much does. <laughs> Pretty sad, so he begins to make his plans. That's what Jacob's good at. He sends messengers to Esau, calling Esau Lord, calling himself Jacob his servant, asking to find favor in his sight. Now, with Jacob using this kind of language, he is minimizing the blessing that he received from Isaac. Remember, who's the Lord between Esau and Jacob? What did God say? He's minimizing that blessing. Isaac even told Esau, your brother will be your Lord. You will serve your brother. But in order to find grace with Esau, Jacob seems to be willing to relinquish that blessing that God has given him. So he sends out those messengers in fear, wanting to appease his brother. They return and they say, he's coming to meet you with 400 men. That went over great. (laughs) 
That really helped the fear that was just pounding in Jacob's heart. Oh my gosh, the Bible says he's greatly afraid. He's greatly distressed. And what about that camp of angels that came to encourage him? They sort of fade out of his mind. I've got to handle this. What am I going to do next? While Jacob is in God's presence, he seems to understand his spiritual lessons. But when a crisis comes up before him, he begins to think his natural power is more important than the power of God. And that's what he does. He quickly divides his camp into two camps. If Esau destroys one, then the other camp will live. But then we see this wonderful maturing of Jacob. Jacob recognizes his need for God. Yay! He prays. You know, this is the first recorded prayer we have of Jacob from the time he left Canaan 20 years earlier. But here he prays. Let's look at that. Verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers and the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Such a great prayer. First of all, he's willing. Jacob says, remember, Lord, I'm doing what you asked me to do. I'm going to the land of my fathers. He's humble. He admits of his unworthiness of the love and faithfulness of God. He's sincere. He petitions God for his help, and he admits that he's frightened of his brother. And he's bold, praying to God, help me. And remember, this is what you promised me, these future blessings. And isn't it great when you realize that speaking God's promises back to God encourage our faith? So when we're struggling, try to handle something on our own, if we stop and pray and we speak to God, then we can understand and not live life just in our own strength. Prayer reminds us of who God is. When we speak our prayers back to God and, and his promises, we can start to loosen our grip on everything we're trying to do in our own strength. Jacob is learning that. This prayer helped him learn that. Um, again, seems like after this prayer, though, he sort of got up and dusted off his hands and thought, now what can I do? What am I going to do here? He's planning again. His fear is ruling over him more than his faith in God. When we are ruled by our fears, but not by our fear of God, it's going to result and spiritual defeat. We make poor choices, we fall, we fail, we walk in the flesh. And I have to say again, it's not a sin to be proactive in our trials, it's a sin to wrestle with God in the way we approach them. How we choose to approach them. Here's a great quote. The man who prays hopefully and trustfully will find his heart and mind so taken up with God 
that instinctively will be led to adopt methods afterwards that will reveal his trust and answer his own prayer. He will know when to stand still. He will know when to go forward. And here's the reality. It's one thing to seek wisdom from God and trust his plan. It's a whole other thing to make our own plan and ask God to bless it. Do you see the difference? Here's Jacob. That's his plan. With fear ruling Jacob's heart, here's his unnecessary plan. He sends 550 animals from his two camps to Esau. Donkeys, cattle, goats, um, sheep, camels, five separate herds. Hey, think about that. What he's sending to Esau are the covenant blessings that God gave him. These are the blessings of God that are part of the covenant, and he's willing to send those on to, to Esau. He again calls him his Lord. He again tells Esau, I'm your servant. And that even looks like he's willing to negate his God-given leadership of his family. Jacob committed his way to the Lord, but he didn't trust God along that way. He needed to realize deliverance comes by faith and not by giving tribute to the enemy. This wasn't so much a matter of repentance for what Jacob had earlier done to Esau, as it was a plan for survival. It was a survival technique in his mind. <laughs> Here's the great thing. God's love prevails. Aren't you glad? Because don't you do all these things? I do all these dumb things. What would we do without the love of God? Wow, it overcomes all those things. When we lack faith in God, he stays faithful to us. So Jacob has wrestled spiritually with God his whole life. And so God says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to come down and rescue you by wrestling with you physically. Whoa. Why does he do that? He loves Jacob. He loves him and he disciplines those he loves. And I think God had some things he wanted to wrestle out of Jacob before he set foot in the promised land. Look at Hebrews 12. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. A staff member sent this poem out this week about something else. I thought this should be called Jacob's poem. Listen to this. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play his noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and so bold a man that all the world would be amazed, then watch God's methods. Watch his ways, how God ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him. How God bends but never breaks him when his good he undertakes. How God uses whom he chooses. Yay. Yay, it's not up to us. God's love 
prevails. Look at verse 21. So after he sent the presents, Jacob himself stayed that night in the camp. And the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and set them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw he didn't prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. Okay, this is a story of contrast. Night, day, human, divine, need, grace, stubborn independency, and the divine power of God. God and man. It's Jacob's story, it's our story. How man wrestles with God throughout his life and he has a choice to make, to yield to his love and be blessed or not, and to suffer. Before we get to the wrestling match, I wanna look at Jacob though as he's at the um, Jabbok, which was a tributary of the Jordan River. And the Hebrew name for Jabbok sounds like the word wrestle. So, you know, years and years later, as Israel would walk by that area, they'd say, that's where Jacob wrestled with God. And didn't that really sort of define who Israel, the nation, became? A nation that wrestled with God as well? Jacob was very conscious a great crisis was coming in the form of his brother. Any moment Esau with 400 men might come down on him. So he typically planned accordingly. He ran ahead of God. He sent those presents and he sent his family across the river. And now we see him standing on the other side in the dark. Maybe he saw himself as a guard. Maybe he was taking every precaution he could to be somewhere where he could try to get his eyes on Esau. So we look deep into the night. We see a terrified 97-year-old man named Jacob, the great covenant receiver, standing, shaking in fear, in the dark, on the side of a riverbank, in the dark where he pretty much has been spiritually most of his life, in the dark, representing the place he found himself to be right now, fearful. He's in the dark when God comes to him, but when God leaves him, what's there? Light. We're not the same after God spends time with us and we with him, and there's that communion and union. Jacob's gonna walk out in the sunlight. So we don't know when this man approached Jacob to begin the wrestling match. But 
I know this, Jacob had no idea. I'm thinking first he thought it was Esau who just jumped out from behind a tree, began wrestling Jacob. So they're wrestling away. Little did he know he was grabbing and grasping the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. This is called the theophany, when Christ would come in the flesh in the Old Testament. And that is who it was. No angel could have said or done what happens in the next few verses. It wasn't a vision or dream. Jacob limped away, his injury was real, and the fact that the Hebrews um, talk about that still and use it for dietary restrictions proves that the story went on how Jacob was limping. The Hebrew verb used to describe the wrestling means dusty. They were getting dusty. They were probably rolling all over. They did this all night, so they probably rolled all the way of the river and rolled all the way back the other edge of the river. Anyway, it was a strong fight. Went on for hours. The man did not beat Jacob um, until morning approached, and he simply touched the hip of Jacob and put it out of its socket dislocated it. And I think when that touch went off, a touch went off in Jacob's head. A light bulb, bing, this is God I'm wrestling with. And we see a little bit of a change. He thinks to himself, I'm struggling with God face to face. That's kind of what I always do. I'm always struggling with him. And we see the Lord's gonna cripple the self-sufficient believer so he might yield to his power. When Jacob yielded to his power, he clings to God. He needs God. He's crying out for a blessing. What a wonderful place for Jacob to be. What a wonderful place for us to be. There is blessing there. Jacob asks for one, and he's given a new name. But before God gives him a new name, he wants to remind Jacob of his old name. So he says, tell me your name. Because by speaking his name, Jacob will be confessing his nature. So he says, um, what's your name? Jacob. Jacob. <laughs> what, what's your name? Jacob. What's your name? Jacob. Heel catcher overreacher. God wants Jacob to put that old nature behind him, and he wants Jacob to realize it. So he says, you're not Jacob any longer. Your name is Israel. That means two things at once. It's kind of hard. It means God fights, and it means you fought with God. It means both of those things at the same time. A pledge of victory and success in Jacob as his life as Israel. Israel would be the nation that would fight for God and God would fight for them. Holding tightly to God throughout our lives will open our eyes to who he is and who we can be when we hold on to him, when we grasp him. We realize we can be new. We can be better. We can be more. We have a strong advocate. It's not by deeds, not by human effort, not by my energies, but in union and communion with God, blessings become ours. It's interesting to me when Jacob asked God, what's your name? He says, why do you need my name? 
And I think here's what he means by that. You already know the answer to that question. But also, I think he's showing you can't demand things of God. You can't try to control God. Jacob is left alone. He's amazed. He's shocked. He's been with God and lived. He names the place Peniel, meaning face of God. And I want to end with this. Our last picture of Jacob is of a man named Israel standing on the threshold of the promised land. The sun is behind him. The land of promise is before him. And so he walks toward it limping. It may not look like it, but Jacob is in better shape now than when he left. When God touched the strongest tendon of Jacob, his strength shriveled, and I think some of his self-sufficiency shriveled along with it. And as he limped along, I think something wonderful dawned on him. His life was in the hands of the one against whom it was useless to struggle anymore. Lamentations 3 says this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. To accomplish what God wants us to do, we do it in faith. Wrestle no more because God's plans prevail, God's protection prevails, God's love prevails every time. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you. You are good. We love you. We give you our lives for your glory. May we limp as we walk, meaning may we depend on you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.